Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a new podcast from Politics Home. I'm Alan Tolhurst, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the biggest political stories of the week with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. Joining me this week are our political reporters Eleanor Langford and Noah Hoffman, and a Conservative MP Hugh Merriman, who chairs the Transport Select Committee in the House of Commons. This week, obviously, the big story is the strikes. We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. We've had the first day of industrial action. We've got two more days planned for Thursday and also for Saturday, having walked out ahead of the first strike on Monday, the RMT are now back in talks, but it doesn't seem particularly likely that we're going to get much of a a breakthrough, which means that we're going to have plenty more industrial action. It was interesting to see what were the whole wider question of public sector pay and whether actually, you know, people deserve to get an inflationary pay rise, given that inflation is up around sort of 11%. So, you know, it's just kind of interesting to see where that kind of is. And and Ellie, what, what your kind of thoughts were around that what do you think we're kind of going to see much of a, a movement from the government on that or do you think they, they seem pretty clear that in line with inflation is simply going to make things worse the kind of wage inflation spiral yeah they're pretty clear on that but that is unfortunately what a lot of the unions are asking for we had some teaching unions today saying that they would like a at inflation pay rise and uh, they're not going to get that so there's going to be probably teacher strikes down the line and we're also looking at strikes in other sectors in, in, in the nhs even barristers are looking at striking yeah and it's all, all the same work, reason bus yeah. worker strike already come through and the postal workers think are balloting for strikes as well yeah and it's all the same reason it's all cuts in the company and cost of living rises and the need for inflation based pay rises and it's and that's the sort of the the broad theme so the government's position is still that you know not at inflation pay rises and there may be economic arguments to that but that's not going down well with the unions. Yeah, Boris Johnson's spokesperson today said that blanket pay rises in line with inflation would be reckless. Yeah. Hugh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a tricky one because obviously it's the government has said that we'll stand by people through the cost of living crisis. And part of that means actually giving people the wages that they actually need to get through the cost of living crisis. Equally, if we're not careful and our borrowing goes up, then it means that that of itself can be inflation, can also put interest rates up, which then costs people more with their mortgage. So it's a balancing act, as it often is if you're the Chancellor. So I think we're going to have to be very, very careful. But it's absolutely the case. As soon as you settle at one higher level, then, of course, all the other public sector workers expect the same as well. So it makes it difficult. What we'll have to do is to bring in productivity gains in return for pay rises. And actually, that's really what the rail negotiations are all about, trying to reform rail so that we can actually make it more productive, make savings and then use those savings to help pay the workforce and also fund the railway. So rail is actually a good example of, of this in action. Yeah, definitely. And uh, what is interesting, though, I think with Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's Questions was suggesting, was pointed to a story earlier this week, suggesting that the government is happy to see bankers' bonuses go up while the public sector are being asked to sort of pay restraint. And we can kind of see that's going to be a line, I think, that the, that the Labour are definitely going to keep pushing. And Noah, do you think that that's how that's going to go? Do you think that the government is going to be able to hold this line, essentially, given that if you look at pensions, they've agreed also that actually that they're going to get the triple lock back and that the state pension is going to go up in line with inflation and they're saying that that's not going to cause you know the kind of the same spiral of inflation that a pay rise would but is that really going to hold if you've got the lowest workers you know not getting 11 percent while the state pensioners are i don't think it will and i was really keen to see what the polling suggested i would have thought based on government rhetoric that the public would be largely against the strikes but it seemed to be quite even in terms of who is for and against it which I don't know 
whether that would trigger some sort of a rethink mm. um, in government as to the policies they put forward and as to how they talk about it, because we've been seeing a lot of sort of discourse around class war, making this an us versus them issue. But I think the public, no matter what class, so to speak, they belong to, you have a lot of empathy for people who provide public services, essential public services. Yes, a lot of people will be annoyed that they can't get to work and can't get to operations, personal engagements. But I don't think there is as much anger as some predicted about these strikes, although that could change as time goes on. And especially yeah. if we see sort of particularly, NHS staff walk out. Yeah, particularly after the pandemic, when it was all about these public sector workers, and we were clapping for NHS staff every Thursday. And frequently, the government line was, you know, thanking these public sector workers for the work that they've done. And then we're getting to this point, they've kind of washed their hands. Right, because the question respond- would then be, do, they, yeah. do there's over pay rise to go alongside that, essentially? Yeah. I mean, I don't think the public are out there loving the strikes. But I don't think there's as much anger as what you know when ministers doing the broadcast around they're suggesting that you know there'd been uproar among large swathes of the population which I don't think there has been I don't think the polling shows that yeah there was been. a poll on came out yesterday from Savanta saying that almost 60% said the strikes are justified which is not just supporting that's actually saying that they can understand why that's happening and actually two-thirds say that they blame the government for not doing enough to stop that and actually that's another one of the issues that Labour have been putting forward is suggesting that actually Grant Shapps has been saying that the government can't get involved. Obviously, the government does get involved in, in pay disputes and stuff. And actually, that the idea is that actually the government are just sort of wringing their hands of this whole situation. Hugh, do you think that the government does have a role to play in this, in, in stopping further strikes? Obviously, it doesn't look like it's going to happen this week. But if we are going to see a summer of discontent, a summer of strikes, your former colleague, Ken Clark, said that he thinks that people are initially quite angry with strikers, but then eventually they start to get angry with the government for not doing enough to stop that. It's like you're the kind of people in charge ultimately you're not doing enough to stop this from happening ken's right people ultimately say well you're the government what are you going to do about it that's what we elect you for so i think ultimately that does happen in my area we had strikes on southern some years back and even though again it was all about technology did the driver or the guard open close the door to me it seemed completely disproportionate in terms of strike action but it was the case that people were saying it's the government's fault they should do something about it part of that is actually caused by governments always jumping in often when it actually isn't their responsibility so if you look at the hgv shortage then the government enacted a series of measures when in fact it's actually a private industry issue government could actually do more and We've just put a report out so what they could do, but actually just trying to sort of like give some permits for the European workers was never really going to work. So, you know, in a way, if the government is actually going to sort of insist that it sticks itself in to fix all issues, then it can't really complain when it gets blamed for something like the rail strikes. Mm. What I would say, though, and I spent 18 months as a negotiator for the joint administrator of Lehman Brothers just on one deal. I was in there every single day. The joint administrator, who in this instance would be Grant Chaps was never going to be in there every single day. Yeah. Would never get involved in the technical, but would be actually behind the scenes giving a mandate and ultimately sealing the deal. That's what Grant Chats would do. To actually expect him to be in the room where we're actually talking about reform, safety issues, the real technicals, is classic politics, but it's just not how negotiations actually work. Yeah, sure. I mean, you, you talked then about the individual details. I think you, you mentioned that in a piece of this week that railway staff, there's a rule that came in that if you're on a break and you bump into your boss and he engages 
engages you in a conversation that after that conversation you'll then break then starts again which is a, it's kind of a slightly mad rule and there are these sort of things that they're being referred to as sort of Spanish practices and stuff that need to be changed I saw there's a piece in the Telegraph suggesting that it takes nine railway workers to change a plug socket I'm not sure entirely if that's correct but you know what are the kind of those those specifics do you think that the rail companies do have a, have a point when it comes to these kind of changes yeah so some of the examples I mean and they are indeed the case are just daft but actually there are other examples where they're really tragic so we still have people on railway lines doing jobs which technology could actually do a lot better and wouldn't put people's lives at risk you know every time there's a fatality with rail workforce there has to be a report and those reports are increasingly pointing towards the use of technology so you know we have a situation where to check cracks on the line you can have a machine that's fit at the bottom of a carriage and it can take 70,000 pictures that's obviously more effective but that means that you're not putting people's lives at risk but additionally you don't have to shut the railway down to do it so there are efficiency gains here which will make the railway safer for the workforce better for the passenger and will actually provide the money to actually pay for the running of the railway because obviously 20 percent of the ticket sales have gone so something's got to plug that gap but also to give those that work on the railway a decent pay rise so with sensible talks we can get there in a way, we need to take the politics out of the situation in order to deliver a settlement, mm. which is good for everyone. On the other side of it, obviously, Mick Lynch from the RMT has been said that railway workers are not you know, resistant to these kind of modernisation. Actually, a lot of modernisation has come in in the past 10 years. And actually, it's, you know, but I think interestingly about Mick Lynch, obviously, there's criticism of, of Keir Starmer not saying anything. He didn't give any sort of statement yesterday. And instead, it was left to Mick Lynch and the RMT to go out on the, on the airwaves. Yeah, it seems to be quite enjoying himself, I think, Noah. What, what did you kind of make of, of Mick Lynch's uh, performances uh, yesterday? Well, Hugh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but he's starting to gain a bit of a cult following among not your <laughs> usual, you know, 70-year-old Che Guevara t-shirt donning <laughs> fans, but just among, like, he's got a huge support base on TikTok. People are suggesting he should be a bombshell on Love Island because he doesn't put <laughs> up with any crap. He's a character. And as journalists, I'm sure Ellie and... Alan, you can attest to the fact that he makes for great stories. Yeah, as he's well. good copy. He's very good copy. He's, yeah, I think he is quite likable, just in his in his bluntness. And I don't know whether that has thrown a bit of a curveball at government who need to, for their own reasons, you know, make him out as this sort of monster-like figure who's trying to bring back the 1970s. But it's been funny seeing on social media how much of a fan base he's been building up. I've got to know the union leaders quite well. I mean, Sharon Graham, who's now in charge of Unite, I worked really closely with her when we were looking at British Airways and the treatment of their staff, appalling as it was. And I worked really closely with Sharon. And I try and work closely with industry as well. So I have a really good opportunity just to see how everyone interacts. And I mean, Mick, like his predecessor, actually, is sort of a bit like Uncle Mick. They're all called Mick as well, the Aslif. Uh, leader is <laughs> yeah. also a Mick Whelan. You know, I've got them really well with him during the P&O issue because they were RMT members as well. I mean, I do disagree that, that he is up for modernisation. I understand their point, which is they're there to protect members' jobs. And if members' jobs are being replaced by technology, that's an issue. And that's where we need to show that there is a future for the workforce, but it'll be doing different kind of jobs. But you're right. He's very nonchalant. And I, I listened to him <laughs> with Kay Burley. Yeah, I thought was... he came across brilliantly. The whole idea was, you know, some rabid picket line. He just turned around and said, that's what a picket line looks like. And uh, <laughs> yeah. it's just refreshing and quite different. I mean, look, as I say, I disagree with where he's coming from, but I've always engaged well with him. I like working with him. And he is good value. And I can see why people have got this slight sort of cult sort of feeling. Maybe there's a future outside the union movement for, for me. Yeah, potentially. I think, but actually, I think, you know, it was interesting to see the way that that contrast with 
Labour and with and with Keir Starmer and obviously he's got a bit of an issue with it. There was this edict that our colleague Sienna Rogers put on earlier this week that Labour front benches were told not to appear on the picket lines and a number of them defied that call and there's you know there could be potential sort of sackings as a result of it. You know it was obviously a tagline that, that Boris Johnson used at Prime Minister's questions. He said that uh, Labour was literally holding hands with Arthur Scargill. Now what do you think about this because normally a big set of industrial action the government normally would be the ones coming out of it quite badly but it seems as though Labour are the ones who've been who've been coming off worse I think out of this. I feel sorry for Keir Starmer in the sense that he needs to do whatever he can to get power to get into government because that's the only way Labour will ever be able to push through the changes it wants to see in their view say helping the rail workers. Keir Starmer will not do anything unlike his predecessor to detriment that because he actually understands that to win a general election, you need to have popular appeal. And his focus groups, his strategies, it would seem, came to the conclusion that Labour on the picket lines could conjure images of Corbyn, McDonnell, and no one likes them, let's be honest. So <laughs> they, he decided, you know, strategically, thinking in the long term, it's not the best idea for us to be on the picket line. So I understand that, but it didn't go down well with a lot of um, his shadow ministers who were bitching to us anonymously <laughs> about it. But, you know, but you talked about the polling earlier. It's not as though the strikes are massively unpopular. Also, they're called the Labour Party. They grew out of the trade unions themselves. If any party should be supportive of, of workers going through industrial action, it should be the Labour Party. It's an odd position to sort of find themselves in. I understand it, but I think it comes very much back down to Keir Starmer really wanting to differentiate himself and show himself more to be the Tony Blair of Labour than the Jeremy Corbyn of Labour. And I, and I think that he imagined and his advisers imagined that it would be a risky mm. move to be on the picket lines. Yeah. And it would be an, another easy attack line for government and for the Tories, which are some of his shadow ministers put to us when we asked them about how yeah. they felt. And we were seeing like lots of Conservative MPs suggesting these are Labour strikes, you know, which is a bit bizarre given that the RMT disaffiliated from Labour almost 20 years ago and Mick uh, Lynch is not exactly much of a friend of, of Keir Starmer. But it does seem as though that, that is sort of cutting through if you search for the strikes, you do get this idea that Labour are somehow involved. What did you think of your colleagues tweeting things like, thanks Keir and that sort of stuff around around the strikes and stuff? What did you, what did you make of that? Well... I mean, you wouldn't have found any from me, because <laughs> right, yeah. uh, so that's probably why you asked me about colleagues. It's just not my thing. Yeah. I'm actually more interested in finding solutions. That's why I chair a select committee. I'm cross-party. I'm very close friends with Graham Morris, who was about as far left as you can get. And we all work together to try and find solutions. And I think you know a lot of people I know are concerned that, hang on, all this politics, this is going to stop us getting a settlement. Yeah. The reassuring bit is, and again, it's perhaps why you don't want the politicians also in the room as well is that you know those leading the negotiations Andrew Haynes the chief executive of Network Rail they are serious about the railway and finding a solution here and we'd like to hope that the trade unions will do so to preserve jobs and get the pay rise so the politics going on is a, is a sort of natural thing of, of the political system isn't it the conservatives will beat up Labour and say they're on the side of strikes and not on the side of the passenger and you know Labour are sort of a little unsure of what to do I mean, all I would say is that Tony Blair had a knack of actually keeping the unions with him and modernising at the same time because he had that charisma to be able to do it. And I would also say, because my, my parents, my grandparents were steeped in the Labour and trade union movement, that a lot of Labour MPs I know feel proud that they're part of the union movement. That was the birth of the Labour Party. So I can understand why they want to go on 
on the picket line. Yeah, definitely. I just press you on that, though, in terms of what the government can do. Obviously, like you say, you don't, you don't think Grand Shap should be in the room around the table. But what can the government do practically, do you think, in order to help move this stuff along? Is there something that they can do either behind the scenes or, or through ACAS or whatever? What, what are the kind of practical things the government can do? Well, the way I see this strike rolling out is that there will be enough reform in there to actually make it safer, but also to actually provide the efficiencies. That will actually fund some day-to-day monies going towards the operation of the railways, which it needs. We can't just carry on with a £16 billion taxpayer subsidy. It used to pay for itself in terms of the trains. I think that, that money will then be available for a pay rise, but it'll have to be a sensible one. But then also, there must be a way of actually taking the threat of compulsory redundancy off the table. There's already been a round of voluntary redundancies through network rail, a little more at the senior management side, but you know lower as well. And that was very successful because the, the workforce tends to be a bit older and perhaps some of them are actually looking to move out. So there must be a way of, of anticipating that, yes, these changes will lead to fewer people, but there'll be enough voluntary redundancy so it won't be compulsory. So I actually I feel that this is well within solving distance. And I think that what's probably have to start seeing more of is those involved in the talks talking to the public and yeah. maybe the politics will actually slightly die down. Uh, it's interesting, you know, the, the strikes have come in a week when lots of things are going on. Our, our colleague Adam Payne is currently struggling to get down to Glastonbury thanks to the, the train strikes. But obviously there's also perhaps some of your colleagues might be trying to get down to Tiverton and Honiton or up to Wakefield for the, for the by-elections taking place. Ellie and I were very disappointed that we missed on a barbecue at the Australian High Commission <laughs> um, because we couldn't be bothered sitting on a bus for three hours. Yeah, I mean, you are the real victim. Most importantly, the, we are the victims. The real victims. Yeah, uh, yes. Of, really of, hot. Of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but Elliot, how, how are things looking ahead of those by-elections that are coming out? Will we get the results probably on, on Friday morning? Well, we had Ed Davion a couple of weeks ago and, um, yeah, sorry, Olion last week. And both of them were saying with Tiverton, like, no, no, they're, they're playing down their prospects right. there. But... They've played down every prospect for every of the by-elections that they have taken. Cheshire and Amersham and Owen Patterson's seat in North Shropshire as well. And I think there, there was some internal Lib Dem polling which was suggesting that it was like neck and neck. Yeah, I'm always um, very wary of internal polling because yes. you can effectively make it say what you want and you're under no obligation to release it to actually see yeah. it. So. But the mood I've heard from Tory party activists who've, who've been down there and MPs is not looking great. It's a 24,000 majority. If they do keep it, it will be a massively slashed majority. Mm. As for Wakefield, that kind of feels almost like a done deal as well. Yeah. For a number of reasons, and one of them being that it was a lot more of a traditional Labour seat than a lot of the red wall seats that went to the Tories. So that, I think, is going to be less of a shock. But Yeah, I think it was Labour for about 87 years before the Conservatives won it in 2019. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was on the radio the other day, so Payne obviously wrote a book about a lot of these you know, broken heartland seats, he called it. And he was saying that that struck him as one of these seats that is the most labor so yeah i think wakefield is a, a done deal i think that's expected to go mm. to labor tifton honton might go to lib dem i mean it'd be huge we we're talking about it as if it you know might happen it twenty four thousand majority is is huge huge even in by-election terms is massive yeah we had sarah olion last week saying that that would be one of the biggest turnovers since like the 70s or the 80s no, i think more than that i think like that in terms of a swing that it would require it goes back to sort of the 1930s the Lib Dems were actually in third place in 2019, yeah. which they were in North Shropshire as well. But it's kind of interesting that, that they're kind of focusing on it more. I just, I just wonder, obviously, it does feel a little bit like the losses are sort of baked in. We obviously had, there was the confidence vote in Boris Johnson a few weeks ago, and there was a suggestion that things could change if they lost the by-elections. But it almost feels like that was part of the conversation that was taking place then was already with the expectation that those by-elections would be lost, I think. Yeah, I think we've known since they've been called that they were risky seats. Yeah. It wasn't a given that they were going to be um, staying conservative. 
I think you're right. I think that's part of maybe why the confidence vote was called. And obviously Boris Johnson won that confidence vote and is we have him for another year at least. You know, well, pending other, maybe not. <laughs> pending other challenges. No more confidence votes for another year at least. No, yeah, but there is some chat about changing the 1922 committee rules in order to facilitate a confidence yeah. vote. Um, which they heavily deny, time. but... Which they deny, but there's a seat coming up for grabs in the 1922 leadership. Yeah, there is, yeah, because I think one of them was... Was, was uh, promoted was to PPS. PPS. Obviously, yeah. it's only backbenchers can serve. But actually, there's, there was going to be... We're not sure if that's going to be filled by itself. It's more like that's going to wait until there are wider 22 executive elections right. later or probably in the summer. So we could see a movement on that. I saw Hugh nodding his head there. Are you, are you going to be uh, standing for uh, the 1922 executive? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> well, they all do a great job. But yeah, they, it comes up on an annual basis. So yeah. they will all be up for election. And uh, my understanding of what occurred last time is that they they'd confronted... Theresa May with the rules may change and yeah. then shortly after that we found that she'd set her own date yeah so it's always possible and the very strange thing about the 20 is that no one ever sees these these letters yes so you'd normally expect okay well something gets audited where you can actually do something like changing the prime minister right and yet no one apart from one person actually knows whether those letters actually ex- exist no. and reach that and we don't know what so. happens what happens to the letters afterwards are they are they archived are they kept i remember speaking to someone around the, the confidence vote who said that even the number 10 couldn't get hold of an actual copy of the rules I, so i tried to do that. i used to work for philip hammond right. uh, when theresa may was of course, uh, yeah, prime minister i went off to try and find the rules and uh, i i tried everything i kept getting stalled as the <laughs> And actually, I don't believe there are any written down. I, well, I think I think Graham Brady says there's one copy which he's got, but that, again, that may just. Be but it's lost. bizarre. I mean, as a, as a sort of shareholder in this, because I'm a backbench Conservative MP, I find it bizarre that we don't have some way of auditing this. Yeah, Graham's just around the corner from me. And he's a great guy, so don't get me wrong. It's nothing to do with Graham. But you know how you can actually change the prime minister with a set of rules that don't seem to exist and certainly not given to the members, and also that you don't have anyone independently verifying it. And and here I am having a go at the unions for being stuck in the past. So, <laughs> Um, there we are. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it doesn't feel as though if the by-elections are lost, that it would necessarily change the dial on, on whether more of your colleagues might decide to, to vote to try and remove the Prime Minister. It feels as though... That's factored in. Yeah, it feels like that's sort of factored in. And while there is anger, you know, it doesn't feel as though it's going to precipitate an, a new move to try and remove it. I think I mean, you have to bear in mind that Monday when we came back and all of a sudden it had been triggered and then yeah. we had the, the contest. It was like a tornado that blew in and then blew out again. There wasn't enough time really to, to sort of really consider and analyse it in terms of what to do. It's that classic sort of chaotic way that our politics works. So by that, it's possible that the tornado blows in again when you don't expect it either. So, you know, these things are all subject to change. But obviously the Prime Minister has to do a lot of hard work yeah. to actually get people through this cost of living challenge, set of challenges, which involves industrial action and, and all the other matters. And, yeah. and he'll very much be judged on that by the country, but also by by the backbench. Yeah, I, I think the kind of buzzword the week after was like delivery, was, yeah. you know, regardless whether you voted for him or against him in that vote, the fact is that, that you know, even if the rules are changed, they're not being changed for a while. There's a there's a grace period, essentially, the Prime Minister has got having won that vote and that essentially he has to use that to deliver things and not, like I say, deliver something like preventing a summer of strikes and that sort of stuff. And Rwanda, we saw that all kick off straight off. Right, exactly. And that, and that was a, a real issue is that the people who are in massively in favour of that, or we know there are some backbenchers who are big champions of that policy, you know, they, they want to see it take place. They wanted to see it begin to 
to show that they were making a difference on the small boats and that sort of stuff. And obviously that didn't happen, which obviously put a dent in it. But that sort of delivery... You know, no, you and well. I don't think... MPs don't blame Boris Johnson for that. They blame, they blame Strasbourg. Potentially, but, but going back to what Ken Clark was saying, that you can blame the, the lawyers or whoever first, but ultimately you are the government. You should be the yes. ones getting these sort of things done. It's about delivery. It's about making sure that you do yeah. and I've, do yeah, I've heard it said that actually a policy like that, just by putting the policy in place, and if it gets jammed by the the legal blob or whatever people might term it as then we'll be given credit because we've tried yes but actually ultimately i think people give out credit or allocate blame if you can't deliver right and so it's, it would be quite a risky strategy just to say well, look we've done our best but it turns out it's not possible my constituents expect me to deliver yeah not to say i mean okay they'll be grateful i've tried but ultimately they'll judge me on what we deliver yeah. and i think that bringing a policy in and then not being able to see it through We'll have some risks. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. But you can read more on all the biggest Westminster stories at politicshome.com. And keep up to date by subscribing to our seven-day-a-week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right corner of the website. Thanks so much to our fantastic guests, Hugh Merriman, and to my colleagues, Eleanor and Noah. Our editor has been Laura Silver. Thank you all for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to keep up to date. If you've enjoyed it, then please leave us a review. And if you want to keep in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a great weekend and be sure to listen again next week. I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown.